Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientist. A very good evening to you. Welcome to this week's edition of the show when we're going to be talking about the science of the very small, that is, the science of bacteria, viruses and fungi. And here to help us do it, we have from the University of Nottingham, good evening to Professor Liz Socket. Hello, Liz. Hello. Thank you for making the journey here from Nottingham to talk about your work. We also have from the University of Cambridge, virologist Dr Stacey F. Stathew. Hi, Stacey. Hi there, Chris. And also from the University of Cambridge, we have fungus expert, not rotting in the corner, Ali Ashby. Hi, Ali. Thanks Hi, for coming Chris. in. So if you'd like to join in the discussion this evening and ask them any question about funguses, about viruses or about bacteria, our lines are open now. It's 08459 25 2000. You can text us on 07786 20 1960 or email chris at nakedscientists.com. Hello, my name's Chris Smith and also here to help present tonight's show is Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hi, Chris. Yes, and of course, as, as always, we will be giving you a rundown of this week's science news. And today we'll be hearing about um, a brand new approach for treating HIV, which is very interesting, as well as a new way of making snake bite venom without actually using venom. And then also we'll be finding out this week about how whales became suddenly legless. But more about that in a little while. And if you're in an experimental mood this evening, Derek is at Downham Market High School. He's with Sheena, Stephen and Ben, and they're going to be showing you how to make your very own litmus paper. And what you're going to need is a red cabbage. It's pretty simple, a red cabbage and a way to crush it up, preferably with a Moulinex blender or something like that. You'll also need a source of acid, not LSD, or alkali, so something like vinegar, lemon juice and bicarbonate of soda. Details on that coming up shortly. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Now, it's estimated that over 100,000 people every year die from snake bites, and it's particularly a problem in, uh, particularly severe in Africa and Southeast Asia. Now, at the moment, the only antidote for snake bites that's available is uh, made by injecting horses or sheep with venom from snakes that has been milked from their, um, from their poison glands, and then uh, you collect the antibodies and the serum from the horse or the sheep. Um, and one problem with these antivenoms is that they contain a cocktail of different proteins, some of which can have really nasty, unwanted reactions in the patient and also the only way to actually get an effective antivenom for a snake bite is to have venom antivenom that's been made from that particular species of snake and you might not even know exactly what you've been bitten by and another problem is that because uh, manufacturing antivenoms is deemed to be not very profitable at the moment some drug companies have stopped making it which is really bad news for those millions of people in developing countries who are at risk from snake bites and sometimes really can't afford to buy the antivenom But now a team of scientists at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine here in the UK have made a serum and instead of using starting off with snake venom, they're using DNA. They're studying the carpet viper, which is responsible for most of the snake bites in West Africa. They examined the genes that are active when the snake is refilling its venom glands. And the team focused on one group of genes that make up proteins called snake venom metalloproteinases. These are a kind of enzyme which destroy other proteins and they cause um, many of the severe symptoms of snake bites such as bleeding. 
Now, they picked out seven snippets of these metalloproteinases that were thought to be the most clinically active, then stitched them together into a single strand of DNA. They then injected those strands into mice. And what happened is they then produced antibodies against those metalloproteinases. And when serum was extracted from those mice and injected into other mice, a more powerful effect against um, the venom than a classic antivenom was, um, was carried out. So, and not just against the carpet viper, but against other species of viper as well. So it had sort of cross-species reactivity. That's it could it. neutralise other venoms. That's right. So, And that's partly because... Um we think that's partly because it's a very specific type of protein that's being developed in this by this process rather than a very broad cocktail that you have from the more classic approach of producing antivenoms. So this is really just a starting off point that might help us to develop a new type of snake antivenom. I think one area where this will be particularly valuable is if they can extrapolate this to spiders because obviously when I was in Australia, Australia is home to most of the most poisonous things you can possibly find on Earth, yes, including the funnel web spider, which mm. has a horrible toxin. Um, and people who get uh, bitten by that end up with horrendous symptoms and the only way to stave off the effect is as you say to get yourself to a hospital very quickly hopefully bringing an example of the spider with you so you, you can identify what it is and then they have a chest with lots of these samples of antibodies to neutralize the thing with and and then you you get an injection problem is you know how big a spider is it doesn't produce huge amounts of venom like a snake does so actually harvesting enough to then put that into an animal to make the animal make neutralising antibodies is not trivial. And they have very specialist people who have to milk a spider. And you know, milking a cow is one thing, but trying to milk the venom from a spider into a tube on a regular basis is not easy. So I would think that will be greeted with a huge amount of enthusiasm. I should think that would be a better, much better way of making spider antivenom as well, yeah. Well, it's good news for people who are interested in the field of HIV. And of course, tonight's uh, show is very much directed towards infectious diseases and viruses. And, and HIV is a classic example of that. It's in fact 25 years this year since uh, the first cases of HIV were diagnosed. And we're still no closer to producing a vaccine. But we have got some pretty effective drugs now. Thing is, this virus changes very, very rapidly and it gains the ability to become resistant to the drugs that we throw at it. It changes its genetic material and that means that the targets that the drugs lock onto on the virus don't look the same anymore, so they stop the drug from working. Luckily, there's a company in the US and they're called Panacos Pharmaceuticals. They're in Maryland on the east coast of the US. And they've come up with a new idea for a drug and they've called their drug PA457. And what this does, <coughs> excuse me, is it locks onto a part of the virus protein as the virus is growing inside cells and stops it assembling properly because the virus is made from a series of small subunits. And these subunits all link up together like building blocks in a wall to form a mature virus particle. And what this does is it locks onto the protein before it gets chopped up and it stops it forming the correct shaped virus particle. So when the virus comes out of the cell it's no longer infectious uh, now they've done some sim some individual trials they've taken patients who were uh, getting towards the end of their illness so in other words they weren't very far off from succumbing to what we call aids defining illnesses and when they were given doses of this agent the amount of virus in the bloodstream fell tenfold so it went down a huge amount very very quickly so what the company are going to do now is a very simple trial uh, by testing this agent in the presence of other drugs that we give for hiv things like reverse transcriptase inhibitors which most people have heard of and also things called protease inhibitors so you give the classic therapy for hiv and you give this drug as well or a placebo, a sugar pill, and you see which group do best. And what they're hoping is that if you can add a new agent, it should stop the virus evolving the ability to resist these drugs quite so quickly. Only downside is it will take time to get the results. It's going to be 29, 2009 before we actually see anything like this finding its way into the clinic. Helen. 
And now let's travel back in time to around 50 million years ago when the ancestors of whales and dolphins were still trotting around on land on four legs. And when these dog-like animals leapt into the water, we know from the fossil record that it took around 15 million years for them to lose their legs and evolve into the sleek swimmers of the ocean that we know today. Now, an international group of scientists led by Hans... Thwissen, I should have thought this, I can't pronounce his name, Thwissen, I think, uh, from Northeast Ohio University's College of Medicine, has studied spotted dolphins that live today and the fossil of, fossils of ancient whales to pinpoint the genetic changes that could have caused whales, dolphins and porpoises to lose those hind limbs and make them basically more streamlined and able to swim through the ocean. Now, what they found was that through the gradual shrinkage of those whales' hind limbs, that was the result of slowly accumulated genetic changes that influenced the size of those limbs. And that these changes seem to have happened sometime late on in the development of whale embryos, because whales, of course, are mammals, like humans, they're not fish, and they develop as embryos inside their mother's uterus. Now, what the team also found was that the actual loss, complete loss of the whale's back legs took place much later on in the evolutionary process. And it seems to have possibly been quite a drastic change that took place when one gene that's essential for limb development became inactivated. Now, that gene is called the sonic hedgehog. And it's vital for limb, normal limb development below the knee and elbow in all vertebrates. And the ancient whale's hind limbs remained perfectly formed all the way down to the toes, even as they shrank smaller and smaller, which suggests that all through that time, sonic hedgehog gene was still functioning. Um, but the team think that they might have discovered the mechanism that might have switched off that sonic hedgehog gene because they found that modern spotted dolphins have an inactive form of that other gene, another gene called the HAND2 gene, which normally acts to switch on the sonic hedgehog in the limb buds um, of the embryos, causing them to grow into limbs. But that doesn't happen in whales and dolphins. Even though they have these limb buds, they don't actually end up growing into limbs um, and keeps them being nice and sleek and hydrodynamic. So why is it called Sonic Hedgehog then, Helen? Sounds like a bit of an infringement on trademark uh, to They me. seem to have got away with it because it's been called that for quite a while. Basically, the hedgehog gene was initially discovered because it, um, it's been found to control segmentation patterns in uh, fruit fly, that um, lab creature that gets lots of things uh, studied in it because it's a simple thing to look at. And what happened is if this, um, if this gene became mutated, um, the embryos actually became covered in little denticles, so it looked a bit like a hedgehog. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. Now, sticking with the fossil record and where things came from from long ago, just as we discovered a few years ago that there are dwarf humans, uh, well, at least they were historically, on the island of Flores, the so-called hobbits, Homo floresiensis, it turns out that there was the same thing going on in the dinosaur world because Martin Sander from the University of Bonn has uncovered the first example this week and published it in the, in the journal Nature of a dinosaur dwarf. A few years ago, somebody came to me and said, there's a small dinosaur bone, would you like to get some histology? samples from it and I said yeah well I can always use some small dinosaurs young dinosaurs and then I sampled it and what happened is that these small dinosaurs were small dinosaurs but they were not young dinosaurs they were dwarfs. So had previously no one discovered a dwarf dinosaur? Well the idea of dwarf dinosaurs has been kicked around for a long time uh, by especially this this um, famous Hungarian paleontologist Nopsha 80 years ago or 90 years ago but he couldn't prove it, and only because of now that we study with a microscope, then we can really prove how old something is in terms of its individual age, you know, if it's a youngster or a fully grown animal. So which dinosaur specifically was it that you, that you found that it dwarfed? 
Well, it's a close relative to Brachiosaurus. That's that big thing with the high neck that's sort of like a dinosaurian giraffe. And those dinosaurs are very big. Do you think these are dwarfs in the same way as we, we might describe humans as dwarfs? In other words, it's, it's a genetic change that leads to a whole group of individuals having that characteristic. Or do you think this is just an evolved group of dinosaurs that happen to be of diminutive stature? It's what's known as an island dwarf, and what's happening is that if you introduce some species to an island, either it goes extinct or it it adapts to the decreased resources, and then it decreases in body size. So where did these guys live uh, that gave them this island dwarfing effect? First, let's start where they were found. They were found in marine rocks in northern Germany, and Germany, just like England, isn't really a terrific place to find dinosaurs because during dinosaur times, Our area here was all flooded, and so we get great marine reptiles, but we don't get great dinosaur finds. If we find dinosaur bones in marine rocks, then that's very strange. So you then have to go and find the landmass where they came from. And what you do then is you go look at a paleogeographic map. And northern Germany, was there was a basin of sea there that was surrounded by several large islands, sort of the size of New Zealand. What is the giveaway, then, that they're dwarfed? Well, if you're lucky, and that works with most dinosaurs, you have growth marks that are like tree rings, and they're just one is laid down every year. And just like in an old tree, the bigger they get, the more slowly they grow, and that means the growth marks get very closely spaced. And when you get very closely spaced growth marks, then you know that was it. Growth slows down. And so that's one clear indication that final size was reached. What sort of dates are we talking about here? That would be about 150 million years ago. It's sort of the heyday of these giant sauropod dinosaurs, you could say. And do you know how long this particular group of dwarfs then persisted for? Or, did, or, or is this their end? They're only there for a short time and then disappeared? We don't know. I mean, we, really, we just have this one data point, basically, and there's a big section of rocks exposed, but only in this one layer is where the dinosaurs come from. So they're all the same age same blink in time. So I guess you must be now quite eager to to get back out there and see if there are more spanning a greater geological time. Right. Well, what I'm quite eager to do is really try to find out if if Nopsha was right originally, because, I mean, he had the idea after all. And so if you see something small, it really sticks out like a sore thumb. And so the next thing to do for me is really to see if the Romanian uh, dinosaurs are dwarfs as well. There's Martin Sander from the University of Bonn with his Diddy Dinosaurs, literally the world's first example of a dinosaur dwarf. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. Now, talking of dwarfs, um, I don't mean this in a nasty way, Liz. Uh, this is some kind of introduction. Uh, but no, you were just saying that um, it's not just dinosaurs that get dwarfed. It, in your field, too, bacteria get small and large, too. Yes, well, bacteria are really small to begin with. Um, about a thousandth of a millimetre long is the usual length for bacteria. Um, we study some that are ten times smaller than that. But I, I just got back from a, an American microbiology meeting, and there they had giant bacteria called Epulopiscium, and these guys are over a millimetre long, and they live in a special place inside the gut of a fish. Are and they just one bacterium, or is that yeah, lots of them linked together? No, that is one bacterial cell, 
and they even divide internally a little bit like um, things that bud off and so they, they don't divide like normal bacteria. So all the rules are broken for these guys because they live in a special gut environment of the fish which looks after them. So it's a little bit like those dinosaurs on an island being being in a special environment. Bacteria in a special environment can be It's a sort huge. of bacterial equivalent of obesity. But what's the cost to the bacteria of getting so big? Presumably it's now stuck in that one place. Yeah, it can't live anywhere else. And, and most of the successful bacteria, if you like, live free living around the world. But, but these guys really can't, can't do that. They can't leave the gut. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. I've had a wonderful uh, email here from uh, someone in America who says they love the sound of our English accents on this program. So thank you very much for that. Our stumbling English. We like. We're glad you like it. That's. Um, oh, sorry. No, that's from Denmark. Patrick, age sixteen. I, I assumed it was an American actually, because it's usually Americans who like our English accents. So do you like them as well? If you're in there listening to us in American, you like to hear us in English. Let us know. Drop us a line, chris at thenakedscientist.com now. Uh, if you've got your red cabbage to hand and your blender, time to do a bit of experimentation now. We're going to join Derek and Sheena, who are with Stephen and Ben at Downham Market High School, to find out how you go about making your very own litmus paper. Hi, Derek. Hi there. Welcome to Downham Market High School. And we've come here this week to do a very simple experiment using some very simple things that hopefully are in your kitchen uh, and a bit of food stuff as well. So uh, listen out for all of that. Now, Sheena is with us to uh, tell us exactly what we're doing. So, Sheena, just quickly, what are we looking at today? We're going to be using red cabbage as a pH indicator. Okay, there you go. So you'll be finding out more about that very, very soon. But also we've got a couple of volunteers who very kindly come down here to help us do the experiment. So guys, could you give me your names and what years you're in, please? I'm Stephen from Year 10. I'm Ben, I'm in Year 10 as well. Excellent. Thanks for coming down, guys. So you at home, the things that you need are firstly some red cabbage, some fresh red cabbage. That's really the key ingredient here. The second thing you need is something with which to, well, either cook it or blend it, okay? So either a blender of some sort or a saucepan and some boiling water to um, cook it a bit. And finally, you need some stuff from your kitchen that can make an acid and that can make an alkali. Now, good acid things are things like vinegar and lemon juice, and good alkali things are things like bicarbonate of soda dissolved in water. So um, we're running through that all again with Sheena. But anyway, Sheena, take us through the, uh, the setup here. What do we have to do with all these things? Okay, so first of all, if we've got fresh cabbage, um, we can either blend it or boil it. Um, so what we've got here is we've just got a bit of chopped up red cabbage, which is just in a, in a blending jar, and we've got a hand blender. It's just covered with water, so we're going to blend that up with the water. Or if you don't have that, then you can boil your red cabbage in some water. Don't boil it in too much water, because we want to get a sort of fairly high concentration of the colour pigment. Okay, then, and then what are we doing with these mixtures that we're making up? We've here, we've got some soap powder, which is just sort of washing soap powder for your washing machine. We've got some bicarbonate of soda, and we've got some lemon juice. And we've just dissolved a little bit of each of these um, into separate glasses. So we've got a glass with a bit of water and some soap powder, and the same for bicarbonate of soda, etc. And we've got those on standby there already. However, the blending of the cabbage has not yet been done. So uh, I say we do it. We're very keen to do some live blending here. I'm sure it's not a first or anything, but we're still keen. So Stephen here has volunteered to do some blending. So here we go. Obviously, we're advising people to have adults around where necessary. But yeah, um, go for it, Stephen. OK, now, Stephen, what can you see there down, down in the cabbage? All the um, juices from the cabbage and the colour pigments have come out. They have indeed come out. And what colour is it? Red. It is indeed. Red cabbage gives you a red juice, so that's fine. How did your blending experience feel? Good. 
Way, okay. Well, we've got some more cool stuff coming up. Right then, so there we go. We've got some juice. Um, what do we need to do with that juice? We just need to strain it because we've still got a few lumps of cabbage in there which we want to get rid of. So we've just got a sieve here that we're going to put, put it through. So then we're just going to get this sort of like purpley red liquid out and we're, so we'll just strain that into a separate container. Okay, and so hopefully you're going to end up with, you know, half a glass of that or something like that. And then what do we do with that finally? Then all we need to do is just put a few drops of this sort of purple liquid into each of our sort of dissolved uh, solutions. And see what happens. There we go. So that's all you've got to do at home. And, of course, Stephen and Ben are here ready to do this. So, uh, Ben, what, I wonder what you think. What, what do you think is going to happen when we put that, that red juice into each of those mixtures? I think that the um, lemon juice will turn into a more red colour and the bicarbonate of soda and the washing powder will turn more purpley and blue. OK, well, that's very good. Sounds very precise. Um, well, we'll see if that does happen. Anyway, that's it. I hope that's very, very simple and that you are able to do that at home. And if you can tell us the result, you can win a prize from us, the Naked Scientists. So please do let us know what the result is in your kitchen. Uh, the number to call is 08459 25 And you can also email chris at thenakedscientist.com. And so we'll be doing that here at Downer Market High School later on. And so until then, hopefully you can ring in and let us know what the result is and we'll be back soon. So until then, it's back to the studio. Thanks, Derek. And in fact, I can tell you what we've got to give away to you this evening is a fantastic prize. Uh, the National Centre for Biotechnology Education and their website is www.ncbe.reading, that's as in the university.ac.uk, have donated us some oyster mushroom spawn so you can produce your very own oyster mushrooms. And Ali has kindly agreed to donate the toilet roll that you need to grow them on. Ali, what's all this about? Well, it's all to do with the fact that um, fungi degrade lignin, and that's wood. And basically, um, paper comes from wood too. So all you need to do if you want to grow fungi is grow them on toilet rolls. But there is a catch. You've got to make sure that you use unbleached toilet rolls. Why is that? Are they fussy? Absolutely, yes. (laughs) The bleaching agents, of course, do the fungi absolutely no good at all. So you will not get any beautiful uh, cultures if you use the bog standard toilet roll. (laughs) (laughs) Ba-boom. If you want to have a go, blend your cabbage, do as Derek says, and add some acid or alkali to your mixture and phone us with the result. 08459 25 2000 or email chris at nakedscientist.com or text us on 07786 20 The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. You're listening to The Naked Scientists. We're here in the studio talking today about very tiny things, bacteria, fungi and viruses. So any questions you have regarding those, do give us a call. We're waiting for you right now. So then the phone number is 08459 25 2000. And if you've got a mobile, send us a text message as well. That's 07786 20 1960. Or of course, uh, you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Uh, I have to say, uh, last week we had a call uh, from a guy called Peter Barton. Uh, he was in Carbrook in Norfolk. He left a message on our answer phone. It goes like this. Oh, hello, Chris. It's Peter here from uh, Carbrook in Norfolk. I'm just wondering whether you can help with uh, something I hope you won't think is a frivolous question. The flags that are currently flying from cars during the current World Cup campaign, I'm just wondering whether anybody, one of your colleagues, might be able to perhaps calculate how much increased fuel will be used by the drag on the vehicles caused by the flags. Um, If you can help, be grateful to hear. Many thanks. Bye-bye. 
Well, Peter, I'm pleased to say that listening to your question last week from Ontario in Canada was computer engineering student Kyle Butler. He has his own podcast called the Brain Food Podcast, which you can find more information about at brainfoodpodcast.com. And he's got an answer for you. And here it is. So how much drag do those flags that were all flying from our windows in support of England, come on England, actually impose on our car? And how much is it costing us in extra fuel? We are interested in determining by what percentage a flag will increase our drag. Let's assume our car is achieving an average fuel consumption of 10 kilometers per liter. The equation we will use involves the values A and C. A is the frontal area affected by the drag, and C is what we call the drag coefficient. A common household car has an A multiplied by C value of 7.35. So our new fuel consumption is 7.35 plus A multiplied by C divided by 7.35. So how do we find that AC, which is the AC of the flag? Unless it's found experimentally, we cannot get an exact answer. However, we can find a good estimate using a table of similar objects. So for our flag, the A multiplied by C value is 0.00471. When we plug this into our equation from before, we find that flying a flag will increase our fuel consumption by 0.064%. To put this in perspective, let's say that every time we fill up our gas tank, we're spending about 22 pounds on petrol. This will mean having to spend an extra 1.37 pence every time we fill up. Here's another way to think about how this will affect us. How much less distance can we travel on a single tank? Assume we can get 450 kilometers on one tank. This translates to 288 meters less per tank, or a little over 2.5 World Cup fields. So even though the flag does make a small difference in your wallet, English pride is certainly worth more than a couple of pence. Back to you, naked scientists, and go England. Well, thanks very much for your support, Kyle, and it's certainly um, we need a bit of go England after yesterday's World Cup result, don't we? I know we won, but I don't I didn't really get the impression we won convincingly. What do you reckon, Stacey? I know you're watching the match. I think the lads did very well in the first half, OK, and I think they suffered because of the heat. We're all suffering because of the heat a little bit, aren't we? But anyway, uh, if you would like to send us any questions to The Naked Scientists, uh, if you go to thenakedscientists.com, which is our uh, website, and you follow contact, which is what Peter did, there's a phone number there, and you can record your questions onto our answer phone, and then we'll try and get you an answer to them here on The Naked Scientists. Fancy listening to The Naked Scientists in your bed, (laughs) on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Now let's go across to the Atlantic for a special science update on bacteria from Bob Hershon and Chelsea Ward, our friends across the ocean. And this week they'll be looking at the possibility of bacterial life on Mars, very relevant for today's programme. And they'll also be getting stuck into some research on the world's strongest superglue. This week for the Naked Scientists, we can't help ourselves. We're going to join in the discussion on bacteria. Why? Well, because here at Science Update, we put the pro in prokaryote. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll keep working on that. Anyway, recently, scientists discovered that a certain type of bacteria is the source of some truly super glue. But first, Chelsea reports on some researchers who are using bacteria to make some educated guesses about life on Mars. 
astrobiologist Dirk Schultzema-Cook of Washington State University simply wanted to know if anything could survive the extreme conditions on Mars. So he and a student took two hardy microbes from Earth and subjected them to Mars-like conditions, low pressure, low temperature, and UV radiation. The microbes didn't fare too well on the surface, but they were able to survive when buried in soil or floating in water. And Schulte explains, Martian organisms would be much better adapted to live on Mars than these microbes. So in a way, what we are doing is a conservative assessment. So if we can show that some organisms on Earth can survive these kind of conditions, we can uh, assume that any Martian organism is much better in doing that. These results suggest that life on Mars probably wouldn't be found near the surface, so future missions should find a way to look for life deep underground. Thanks, Chelsea. Well, if you're looking for the toughest glue around, skip the hardware store and check your tap water. You might find a common pollutant called Colobacter crescentus. In nature, these water-loving bacteria produce a super-sticky adhesive to cling to rocks in rushing currents. Brown University physicist Jay Tong and his colleagues recently tested the goop's strength and found that it was two to three times stronger than commercial superglue. And then one way to imagine, if you imagine if you use this glue to glue your palm into, you know, the ceiling or something, if you imagine, you know, pictures with uh, Spider-Man, you know, holding his palm (laughs) on the ceiling, and that area and the weight it could hold is approximately 60 tons metric tons. So that's equivalent to the weight of 12 elephants. Besides revolutionizing the art of pachyderm suspension, a glue that strong could be used in devices like surgical implants. The next step is figuring out how to mass produce it in commercially viable quantities. So do you think that women who find out they're pregnant should run off to the most peaceful and stress-free place they can for the duration of their pregnancy? Well, that would be nice for mom, but Maybe not for baby. We'll learn about that next time. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald. And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Thanks, guys. Now, if you want to hear more about the wonderful world of bacteria and all the other science news that they have, then check out the website. That's www.scienceupdate.com. It's the Naked Scientists, Chris and Helen, and this evening we've got a virus, fungi and bacteriology-related programme for you, and uh, you can join in to 08459 is the phone number, chris at nakedscientist.com is the email, and you can text us on 07786201960. Stripping down science. OK, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. One of the people who's joined us here this evening is from Nottingham University, and that's Professor Liz Socket. Hi, Liz. Hello, Chris. Now, you heard her briefly earlier talking about things living in fish's guts, but let's sort of backpedal a little tiny bit and just introduce everyone to the world of, of bacteria from first principles. What actually are they? Well, bacteria are very small individuals, but they live as individuals as single cells. So they, they are little creatures that are a single cell, but they have everything required for life. And it's been said what is true of elephants is true of E. coli, which is a bacterium. They can do their whole lives on their own. G- genetically speaking, are they very like us? Um, interestingly, some of their genes are the origins of us. And in, within our own cells, there are ancient bacteria that came to stay um, called mitochondria. And indeed, mitochondria are the things that mean when we eat our lunch, we get some energy from it. They're vestigial bacteria these days, part of a human cell, but they convert food into energy that's usable. And, I mean, 
in the evolution of life, where do bacteria fit in? Do we think that they were there right at the early days or have they come along later? How do they fit into the, to the train of things? Obviously, modern bacteria are modern bacteria, but cells like the modern bacteria of today would have been the beginnings of life. And there were probably several different kinds. Um, some of them came together to give the sorts of cells we're made of these days. And those colobacters that you heard about before do the simplest sorts of splitting one cell into two different kinds. And if you think of humans, our cells are all different kinds, hair cells, teeth cells, cheek cells, um, whereas bacteria come in a few cell types. People have, have said that, that humans are almost passengers in their own body. We're outnumbered by the microbial world living on us and in us to the tune of 50, maybe 100 to 1, so 100 bacterial cells for every one of our own. Yes, and it just reminds you how small bacterial cells are compared to human ones because we're just big fermenters, big vats of bugs dragging ourselves around the earth. But what do they actually look like? Um, bacteria look like um, small little tube shapes. Um, the, the bacterium that was mentioned in the report earlier looks a bit like a banana, um, but so, so small. You could fit 500 of them across a full stop on a printed page, really tiny. And obviously we have drugs to get rid of them because when they get into places they shouldn't, they cause infections. How do those drugs work? Um, a lot of those drugs work by targeting few things that bacteria do that human cells maybe no longer do, that where the genes were lost in evolution. Um, bacteria have interesting cell walls made of bits of trellis, um, molecular trellis. And if you can stop the trellis joining up, then the bacteria burst. And antibiotics like penicillin, which people may have heard of, work by stopping trellises joining in the bacterial cell wall. So they burst. Got a question here from um, Eth. Mount Fitchett, he's in Suffolk, and uh, he's saying if penicillin grows on mouldy bread, why does eating mouldy bread make you ill? Ah, well, that's because you're probably eating fungi of all sorts in, in your mouldy bread and not just a pure culture of penicillin. And the, penis, the penicillium fungus that grows there produces the penicillin antibiotic that's used in the drug. It's not the whole fungus. So that the um, original experiment that showed the bacteria killed by penicillin was actually a plate of um, Alexander Fleming's where a fungus dropped onto the plate and the penicillin oozed out of it and killed the bacteria. It wasn't the fungus itself, it was the, the oozing. But, but why should that fungus make that stuff? Oh, well, because it's uh, all in the war of living in soil. Um, bacteria are fantastic. And, and sitting here amongst these virus and fungus people, I have to stick up for bacteria. But if you're a fungus, you want to degrade all of the dead plant material in soil and you want to suck that up into your cells and you want bacteria not to be sucking it up into their cells because you're a fungus and you want to grow. So if you ooze out something that stops bacteria growing, they can't eat your dinner. So where do these bacteria come by, these agents? Because why is it that they've got them and we haven't? Uh, where the, well, fungi. the fungi, sorry. Okay, so um, I guess really they keep these agents because they still live in soil. If we lay down in soil and ate it for our dinner, we might have these agents still in our cells now. Primitive fungi had to live in soil and had to deal with these bacteria. When we developed enclosed bodies with all these clever immune systems, we were no longer invaded by bacteria. So having an organised human body means that we dropped those genes from our genomes. We probably had them when we were some kind of gloopy sponge way back in evolution, but now we're a big human. 
But if you look at, um, at, at us, for example, we have a, a hell of a lot of bacteria living on us that we say are actually quite useful. I mean, people go down the supermarket and they buy Yakult and other kinds of yogurts that are alleged to improve health. Is there a basis for that? And, and do bugs do useful things in our bodies? Yes, absolutely, they do. And, and they populate lots of surfaces in our guts and in lots of other animals' guts as well. There's some nice research that shows that um, as the seasons change and grazing animals change what they eat, like deer, for example, they change the surfaces of their gut cells so different bacteria can bind at different times of the year and help them digest different vegetables. And so it's really important to us to, to be able to get good nutrition from our food to have this community of bugs. And that's why if you've got a stonking hangover or if you've been pretty ill and had a lot of antibiotics, all my friends are encouraged to drink these kind of yoghurt drinks with live bacteria in. Going back briefly to that fish you said that had the biggest bacteria mm. living in its gut, do we know that that bacteria is doing good things for the fish? Um, yeah, although it's a bit um, difficult to grow this guy outside the fish. And so this is one of these areas where although people have been working on bacteria for a couple of hundred years, it's quite interesting how little is known about these special bacteria. People have just worked out, I heard at a meeting a couple of weeks ago, how these things grow and divide. And so now, now they know that, they're starting to work on really what they're doing for the fish. Um, and, you know, you need to be able to grow them to figure out what they do. There was a great story uh, which was published in the journal Science earlier this year looking at leafcutter ants, which, of course, cut bits of leaf, they take it to their nest, they make use of some stuff that Ali's interested in, which is a fungus, to break down that leaf. But there's an invasive fungus that the ants don't want in their nest that actually is poisonous to them. And so the ants have evolved these tiny pores like an ant armpit all over their body where there's a tiny sweat gland feeding this pore and a specific kind of bacteria, it's a pseudophilum, Elementus nocardium mm -hmm. as the name I seem to remember but it produces this clutch of antibiotics antibiotics that the ants can sort of f feed out and, and sort of dispense around their nest at will and it protects them from this invasive fungus and it protects their own healthy fungus in their nest. Yes it's amazing I mean populations of little creatures use these things and I wonder really if we will gradually understand what humans actually use out of their bacteria within them. There's a lot of projects on these days called metagenomics, trying to understand the friendly bacteria that live in each of our different cavities, mouth, gut, rear end, uh, you name it. And, and people are trying to understand what they do for us. And if the rare ones may be actually really important. And we've only really started to understand the common ones there so far. Because they can turn things in our guts into things that we could not make ourselves. Yes. It's fair to say, isn't yeah, it? And they vitamins, make, they trace make vitamins, elements. Yes, they actually synthesise vitamins for us in our guts and they actually break down uh, complicated molecules into simple molecules we can absorb and have on our bloodstream. Because some people have argued that if you breed an animal and you prevent its gut from being filled with bacteria, which we traditionally would think of as bad things, mm. actually the animals are less healthy than yes. ones which have got guts full of bugs. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that is a, a good message about uh, healthy, healthy farming, I think. It's The Naked Scientist, Chris and Helen, and we're here with you for about another half an hour. We're talking with Liz Socket, Stacey F. Stathew and Ali Ashby about the microbial world. If you have any questions for us, 08459 25 2000, or you can email chris at nakedscientist.com. Don't forget, if you have a red cabbage, grind it up and add some, after you've strained it, some vinegar, lemon juice or bicarbonate of soda and have a look what, what happens to the colour. If you uh, think you know the answer or you get it right, then there's some oyster mushroom spawn in it for you, which has been kindly donated to us and uh, you could be in the, win in the hat for winning that this evening.
Now, another part of the microbial world which we cannot ignore, and everyone who's ever been to the GP will be only too well aware of the statement, it's just a virus, go home. That's the world of viruses, and here to tell us all about it is Cambridge University's Dr Stacey F. Stathew. Hi, Stacey. Hi there, Chris. Thanks for coming in. So, come on, what is a virus? What are these GPs <laughs> saying we've got? OK, well, we just heard about bacteria. Now, viruses are, are much smaller than bacteria, um, so you can maybe fit a hundred or so uh, viruses in you know, the smallest bacterium out there. So they're very small and they contain really just a nucleic acid surrounded by a protein coat. So they're very simple. An infectious uh, bag of genes. Absolutely. Where did they come from? How, that sounds quite complicated, but they can't grow on their own without one of our cells. So where the hell did that well, come from? I mean, probably the simplest way to view it is that they must have uh, arisen really from once there was a unicellular organism. Um, so they parasitise um, a living cell. So what sorts of viruses are there out there and what do they do? Well, there are hundreds of thousands of different viruses and they infect um, all the species of animals and bacteria as well. So um, bacteriophages are known to infect E. coli and um, and also there are fungal viruses, insect viruses. There are many viruses out there. Is there a way in which we can use them to our advantage? Because we haven't talked about vaccines yet, but, but uh, just manipulating the organisms themselves, it sounds to me like they could be tremendously useful given that they've naturally evolved this really efficient way of getting into cells and turning on genes. Sure. I mean, there's the whole science of gene therapy really um, uses viruses to, to deliver um, correct copies of genes uh, to people's cells to correct genetic defects. So that's one way. And people are also using recombinant viruses in which you can clone a, a, a protein of another agent and use that as an infectious vaccine, if you like. Got a, a question here that's come in from Shamsul Azar. He's actually in Malaysia and he's asking about whether viruses can trigger cancer. Well, there's certainly a, a, a number of viruses which are, are known to cause cancer and um, I think a few weeks back in your show, we, we heard Margaret Stanley talk about papillomaviruses and their ability or their strong association um, with cervical cancer. So that's uh, the common wart virus. Um, there are viruses, such, members of the herpes virus family also that are associated with ca cancers like Burkitt's lymphoma with Epstein-Barr virus, for example. Now, I've got a question here which is coming from Marcus and it's about um, herpes simplex virus. This is something you actually work on, so it's yeah. ideal for you. What actually is herpes simplex? Because it's, it's the cold sore virus, isn't it? Yes, herpes simplex virus um, causes cold sore and a closely related virus causes genital herpes as well. And, so and, and another one causes chickenpox. And another, well, humans are infected by eight uh, different herpes viruses. Um, the herpes simplex virus and the chickenpox virus, they're quite special herpes viruses in, in that they persist or go latent in brain cells, neurons. Is that why they keep coming back? Absolutely. So this is perhaps one of the most fascinating areas of uh, research into the herpes viruses, and that's trying to understand their ability to persist in the body. You know, why, why do they establish a latent rather than lytic infection? And how do they avoid uh, elimination by the immune system? So well, talk us through actually the process of herpes simplex. So how do you get it? Who's got it? And what brings it back? <laughs> So, okay. so I, don't, I know who not to kiss because it's the kissing disease, isn't it? Okay, so, so this is herpes simplex virus. is really a ubiquitous virus. So probably 80 to 90% of individuals 
would have been infected at a very young age. So these are childhood-acquired infections. And, of course, these are highly evolved viruses, so they're not associated with uh, severe disease. So, you know, young kids will get infected normally by transmission from saliva, probably by kiss from the grandmother, for example, and it will cause a, an inapparent infection in the mucosal uh, cavity. Um, and then the virus sort of does a trick. It plays a trick. It attaches itself to uh, nerve endings and then just hooks up uh, to the transport mechanisms of the nerve fibre and is transported to specific structures uh, in the nervous system, sensory ganglia, which contain neurons. And the virus just really just uh, goes in there and switches itself off, understanding what switches it back on to cause recurrent herpes is clearly an important topic if one's thinking about uh, potential cures of uh, recurrent herpes infection. Okay, but why is it then that I can go to the GP and if they say I have a bacterial infection, as Liz was talking about, and get some <coughs> antibiotics, right. why are there no agents out there, or very few, which can be used to treat people with viral infections? Right, well, it's, I mean, it has proved remarkably difficult um, to develop specific compounds which will combat virus infections. Okay, there are, as you said, some uh, antivirals out there for HIV and also for herpes simplex. And the problem is, is that the viruses really hijack our cells. So they essentially, by and large, use the normal metabolic processes of our own cells to replicate. So trying to find something that's actually specific, a specific process that a virus is performing that you can interrupt without harming the normal host cell is very difficult. Are we there yet? With herpes simplex virus um, and a number of other herpes simplex viruses, there are some nucleoside analogue compounds which can be used to treat infections but not to eradicate the latent reservoir. So it's still hiding there, you can just suppress the, the virus a bit. And the problem's the same with HIV as well, that you can um, restrict uh, lytic replication, active replication of the virus, but HIV also goes latent in cells in the body and then it's quiescent so the antivirals can't target that population of cells. And I, I guess the immune system can't see it because it's just hiding as a piece of genetic material inside a cell and it, it just can't be seen. Yep, the virus really just shuts down its normal metabolic processes, switches off its genes to essentially be hidden from the immune system. So it's a very clever trick. What about viruses that you get all the time, common cold, flu, that kind of thing? They seem to keep coming back. Why is it that you don't get measles again but you do get the flu year on year? OK, well, I mean, the viruses really fall into two groups and we, we just talked about the, the latent persistent viruses, the hit-and-stay viruses, but most viruses are the, you know, operate a hit-and-run policy that they'll infect somebody, replicate for a few days and spread very rapidly and effectively to new susceptible hosts, OK? And then that person becomes immune for life, OK? In the case of the common cold virus, there are many, many serotypes of virus, slightly different antigenic structures, so we keep getting reinfected. And does the virus change as it goes a bit so that it looks different so the immune system can't recognise it a second time anyway? Is that, is that what you mean? Well, I, in, the, in the case of um, the common cold virus, there do appear to be just many hundreds of different specific serotypes out there. Presumably they may well be changing you know, through evolutionary pressure with time. Um, a classic example, of course, is influenza virus, which um, uses antigenic variation. To, to really be able to reinfect individuals time and time again. So it just looks, it changes, it has a facelift, if I'm a sort of uh, genetic facelift, if you Absolutely. like, to make it look different. If you have any questions on anything we're discussing this evening, 08459 25 2000 is the phone number. You can text us in on 07786 20 1960. Or, of course, you can send me an email. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. Baffled by biology. Yep. Foxed by physics. Oh, yes. 
to get your question answered, call the Naked Scientist now on 08459 25 or email chris at nakedscientist.com. Chris and Helen with you this evening, and we're talking about the microbial world. And here from Cambridge University is Ali Ashby. Hi, Ali. Hi there, Chris. Now, the one thing we haven't talked about, the whole, this whole arm of things that we actually really like to eat, as long as they're not growing on people's feet, of course, and that's uh, fungi, mushrooms, that kind of stuff. That's right. Well, of course, we can't eat them all. Um, but, of course, fungi have their own kingdom. Um, that's a very important thing to know. There are over 100,000 different species of fungi uh, that we know today, and probably many more than that. We predict there are probably about 1.5 million uh, fungi uh, to be discovered, particularly in the rainforests uh, and such like. And we've been talking about size, and in fact, fungi range in size from the yeasts, which are microscopic, 50 microns in size, that we use in bread making and things like that, right through to the most, uh, in fact, the largest living organism on this planet. Isn't there one in America where the, the actual whole organism is acres in size. That's right, that's an armillaria species in Oregon and in fact it stretches, and as we're, as we're in World Cup sort of season, it stretches for 1,600 football pitches. It's quite amazing. But when, when we're saying that, just, just orientators, what does the actual thing look like? Because that's not just one cell, is it? No. I guess would that be the equivalent, to take a human analogy, a very tall person? Well, it in effect, it probably is one cell. You start off with a single spore, and that spore grows out as a mycelial network, and it spreads from a central region outwards. And so, in fact, the uh, fungus itself originated from a single spore. So, yes, it is a single uh, event in itself, if, if you like. Um, it's probably the heaviest organism on this planet, too, and probably the oldest. Um, did the, they came first, did they, before the bacteria that Liz was discussing and the viruses that Stacey mentioned? Well, yeah, I mean, fungi have been around for an awful long time. Certainly we had evidence from the fossil record that they were around in the early Devonian period. When's that? Um, well, that's sort of pre-dinosaurs. million years or so. Absolutely, before the dinosaurs, and they were certainly around uh, at the time of the dinosaurs. Um, and they actually uh, diverged from plants and animals around a billion years ago. Um, so that's quite a long time back in evolutionary time. George is in Suffolk. Hello, George. Hiya. What would you like to ask Ali? Um, I'm just curious on how the fungi actually um, reproduces in... How does the spore reproduce inside the fungi? Right, so you're thinking about a mushroom, are you? Is that what you're thinking about? Yeah. That's what you um, want to know about? Because the mushroom doesn't really have a flower, so it's... I'm curious, how does it, like, um, well, spread right. on its species and seeds, if you know what I mean? Yeah, OK. Well, the mushroom fruiting body itself is there specifically to disperse the spores. That's the first thing you should know. So all of the sexual spores are sitting there under the cap in the gills and they're dropped and picked up by air currents and carried away. But the way that they are actually produced is that underneath the soil, in the ground, the mycelium of the fungus is growing. Originally it grows as a single nuclear um, mycelium and that's called a monokaryotic mycelium. That's not very stable so it has to meet a compatible partner it's a little bit like male and female and so when the two get together their nuclei mix and then you have a complex um, process that then 
uh, culminates in the formation of the fruiting body and little tiny basidia which hang off the gills and it's the basidia that actually hold the, the sexual spores. And the event itself that is involved is a process called meiosis and there are thousands and thousands if not millions of mitotic events um, within that single mushroom that you see. Hmm. Does that clear it up for you? Yeah, thanks. Okay, George. Well, thanks very much for joining us. It's been good having you on the programme. Thanks. All right? Yeah, thanks. Now, if anyone's been having a go at our kitchen science this evening, they'll be blending cabbage and adding it to some acid or some alkali to see what happens. Now, we need to go back to Derek, who's with Sheena at Downham Market School, and find out the answer. Hello there. Welcome back to Downham Market High School, and we're already here to do some testing of the different acids and alkalis that we've, uh, we've got here in the science lab at Downham Market. And uh, with us is Sheena as well, as well as um, Ben and Stephen, who are ready to do the experiment. Now, firstly, Sheena, I wonder if you could just remind us, what are the different mixtures that we're going to be testing here? Yeah, we've got one which is washing soap, so it's just, um, yeah, one is washing machine soap powder, one's bicarbonate of soda, and one of them's lemon juice, and we also just have a glass of water just as a control experiment. Indeed, that's the control, the one where we actually haven't done anything to it, we're just going to see what happens in the, under normal conditions. Okay then, so, Ben and Stephen, if you, if, uh, who'd like to do some pouring firstly? Um, I think we're firstly going to pour into the control, they're pointing at each other, they're not sure who's going to do it. All right, Ben, you're, you're first then. So if you could pour from the jug... We've got some of the juice there, and tell us what you see into the, firstly, the normal water. Okay, kind of an obvious result here, but what have you seen? It's gone down to the bottom and gone all the way around and made the top and the bottom blue and purple colour. Okay, so there's kind of been no change of the colour there. Okay, then, now it's Stephen's turn, I think. So we've got some lemon juice next. Would you care to pour into that and tell us what you see? Well, the lemon juice, it's gone quite dark red. Yeah, okay, it's kind of gone pink, hasn't it? Right, and now back to Ben again. We've got some bicarbonate of soda, so pop it in there and tell us what you see. When the cabbage juice went in, it went a little bit blue, a bit darker than the water went at first. Yeah, okay then. And now finally we've got some soap powder, so Stephen's going to round it off by doing that one for us. There it goes, and what do you see? With the soap powder, it's gone a sort of light green. Yeah, rather pleasant colour, I think. Maybe cyan or something? I don't know. OK, so there we go. We've got kind of green with soap powder. We've got blue with bicarbonate soda, pink with lemon juice, and just kind of the normal purple colour with the water. So, Sheena, why don't you explain to us um, what have we been seeing here? So, yeah, basically, using our cabbage, we've made pH indicators, and it's all to do with how the molecules change when they're, when they're in different environments. OK, now, obviously, you've mentioned the term pH there, so let's begin with that one. What, what does that mean? Uh, pH is how we measure the acidity or how basic, how alkaline a liquid is, and it's, all, it's just a measure of how many hydrogen ions are in that material. OK, and a hydrogen ion, I mean, that's what, the, it's the simplest particle, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's just, just one sort of proton. It's just very simple, yeah. OK, right. And so in an acid, then, I mean, what makes it an acid? Um, it's an acid because it's got a higher concentration of hydrogen ions by themselves compared to water, which means so there's basically more hydrogen than the water has by itself. OK, and then in comparison, a, a, an alkali, or what's sometimes called a base, um, how is that different? That's different. That will have less hydrogen than, than the water will. OK, then. So we've made up this cabbage juice. So how, how does that help us tell between the acid and the alkali? So this cabbage juice has got these molecules which are called anthocyanins, and, and they change how they absorb light in, in their different environments. 
First of all, just to understand why it's purple to begin with, why our red cabbage looked purple to begin with, is because it's absorbing every colour apart from purple. So the white light that shines onto it, which carries all the different colours of the spectrum, it's basically all being absorbed apart from purple, so all we see is the purple colour. When we put it into a different environment, we change it, the, the, molecule, the molecular structure of the anthocyanin. So it sort of takes on new hydrogen ions or it loses new hydrogen ions depending on if we're putting in an acid or an alkali. And that means that the molecule changes its shape, it changes its structure, and it then changes the sort of colours which it can absorb. Okay then, so these, these different mixtures that we've made up, the acids and the alkalis, they are basically different environments for this anthocyanin molecule to do its absorbing and emitting of light. And so essentially it absorbs and emits different kinds of light depending on where it is. Yeah, that's basically just it. It changes what it can absorb. Okay, so there it is. That's what we've been seeing here at Downer Market High School. And, of course, Stephen and Ben have been helping us to do that experiment. So, um, Ben, thank you very much for your predictions on that. So did you actually enjoy the experiment? Yeah, it was great fun. And, uh, Stephen, has it kind of explained to you a bit more about how these molecules work? Yeah, it has. I feel much more confident in pH now. <laughs> okay, that's very good. Excellent. Well, I hope, I hope your exams focus on that highly and you can really uh, get a brilliant mark. All right, well, that's great. Thanks very much to you guys. Uh, thanks to Down the Market High School for having us and to Sheena for doing the experiment as well. So we'll be back next week for some more science. Do listen out for that. Until then, it's goodbye. Thank you, Derek. And I have to tell you that next week it's, it's insect week and we want you to get out there and set up some pitfall traps so that you can tell us what it is that you've discovered in your garden. Very simple. Sink a cup into the soil in your garden and see what falls into it. Right, on the phone now, here's Ewan. Hi, Ewan. Hi. Um, my question is, is fungi a plant? Well, that's a very good question, Ewan. Uh, in fact, fungi are not plants. They're absolutely not plants. In fact, they look like they possibly could be plants, but they're not, simply because they don't contain any chlorophyll. They're not able to capture the sun's light, use the energy to make food. So they have to um, make food by degrading um, li- leaf litter and, uh, and things like that. So a very good question. Thank you for that. Right, uh, Helen, you've got a very quick email there. I've got a quick email here from John Grimwood who says, um, f- along with Kitchen Science, uh, another plant indicator for acidity is the bluebell. And if you go and find some wood ants, you can disturb them a little and wa- wave a bluebell at it and it'll turn pink because they produce formic acid. Well, thank you very much for that. And a massive thank you to everyone for joining us on this evening's edition of The Naked Scientist. Stacey F. Stathew, Liz Socket and Ali Ashby, a, a tremendous thank you for coming in and talking to us about the world of microbiology. Next week, it is National Insect Week. And as I say, we want you to get out there and catch your own bugs and then tell us what it is that you found. We'll be chatting to Claire Ryan from the University of Newcastle and William Foster from Cambridge University. 